Good evening, and welcome to uh, Colorado College Armstrong Hall and this very special event as part of our Cornerstone Arts Week. For those of you who may possibly not know, I am the no longer new president of Colorado College, <laughs> uh, five years into my job, and I am delighted to be able to welcome you to this evening. The Cornerstone Arts Initiative is a 10-year-old program at Colorado College stressing collaborative interdisciplinary arts teaching linked by current and developing technologies. The Cornerstone Arts Initiative has three distinct elements which reinforce each other and help to enrich the life of this campus. The first is curriculum development. The Cornerstone Initiative spurs the addition of innovative courses in the arts that cross traditional disciplines of art history, art studio, drama, dance, creative writing, music, film, uh, digital media. Also, the initiative supports cross-pollination of the arts with other liberal arts disciplines in social sciences, natural sciences, and the humanities. The second element of the Cornerstone Arts Initiative is the Cornerstone Arts Center. Um, that is the building taking shape right across the street from where we meet this evening. This initiative, which is at its heart a distinctive effort at interdisciplinary uh, arts curriculum, is going to realize its home about a year from now, February or March of 2008, when we dedicate the new $33 million Performing Arts Center. Cornerstone Arts Center will stress collaboration and collision mediated across disciplines by technology, and it will house elements of drama, dance, art studio, art history, creative writing, music, and film. Its features include two new theaters, the Idea Space, arts computer labs, music rehearsal space, uh, rogue performance spaces, scene shops, costume shops, a film screening room, a, work, a working sound stage, and large public spaces, all rigged for performance and collaboration. We envision a kinetically fluid arts factory, if you will, for students, an arts, uh, a place where we will nurture uh, arts in every possible way. I hope you're as excited about that as I am and watch it grow with uh, care, right? And let me just add, at, for, because many of you are here from the community, right across the street from the Fine Arts Center, which is expanding and, and uh, modernizing as well, this is going to be a wonderful, wonderful addition for the campus and for the community. The third element of our Cornerstone Arts the initiative is this Cornerstone Arts Week. The Cornerstone Initiative supports a high-visibility public lecture on an interdisciplinary topic chosen by arts faculty and students, reinforced by special guests, interdisciplinary courses, and occasionally traveling gallery shows and installations. Past Cornerstone Arts Week events have included in 2002, Is There a Democracy in the Arts?, it featured Martha Bayless, Robert Pinsky, and others. 
In 2003, we took up the question, is there a gay aesthetic in the arts? And it featured Bernard Cooper, Peggy Shaw, Tim Miller, for those of you who saw a memorable show here, and Brian Freeman. In 2004, we asked the question, is nothing sacred? Tony Morrison and Frank Toker helped us. In 2005, so what's American about the musical? Um, you may remember Jane Krakowski, Lawrence Maslin, and Michael Kasharin. Uh, last year, we asked, what is the legacy of modernism? And we featured Louis Menand. This is our sixth year of a Cornerstone Arts Week, and our theme is uh, Religion and the Arts, Why Be Afraid? Now, this is not a new question because many of you will have participated in some or all of a symposium focusing on this question in the fall when we welcomed a variety of speakers on campus and had a very interesting and challenging time. Nor is tonight's lecture the culmination, although it may well be the high spot of uh, a remarkable year for us. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, on Thursday night we open Save This City by the Civilians, a uh, drama that's going to premiere here after six months of research in Colorado Springs. Uh, this drama was conceived by a CC alumnus, playwright, and dramaturge uh, Jim Lewis of the class of 1979. So tonight we have a very special opportunity to listen to a distinguished American scholar and uh, someone who's not shy about her opinions, but I'm going to let David Mason, our own extraordinary poet and teacher, introduce our guest. So let me turn the program over to David Mason. David, thanks. Well, good evening and welcome again, not only to the Colorado College community and those of you who've come from other parts of the region, but also to those who are watching via the C-SPAN network. Before we begin, I have a few announcements to make. First, after her lecture this evening, Professor Palia will take questions from the audience, and you will notice that we have microphones set up for this exchange uh, I also need to let you know that if you have a cell phone, now is a very good time to turn it off. And uh, we'd prefer that you don't use flash photography during the lecture tonight. Uh, I hope you noticed as well that Camille Paglia's books are on sale outside the theater. She'll be happy to sign them for you after the reading. And finally, this is, as uh, Dick Celeste said, a very big week for the arts here at Colorado College not only is the production by the civilians opening on Thursday night, but we also have one of America's very best writers of fiction and memoir and film scripts giving a reading on Thursday night in the Gates Common Room of, of Palmer Hall, and that's James Salter. Uh, and I would encourage you all to organize your schedule so that you can make both of these extremely important events. Um, tonight it's my pleasure to introduce Camille Paglia, who writes galvanizing prose and believes critics ought to speak to readers of all kinds. Her first book, Sexual Personae, addressed in encyclopedic terms a simple but provocative thesis. Quote, from remotest antiquity, Western art 
has been a parade of sexual personae. It is cinema of sex and dreaming. Art is form struggling to wake from the nightmare of nature, end quote. She's continued this project in additional collections of essays, Sex, Art, and American Culture, and Vamps and Tramps, as well as a close reading of Alfred Hitchcock's great film, The Birds. As a poet, I particularly admire her most recent book, Break, Blow, Burn, because it honors the art I love and because it calls both poets and critics to task for isolating themselves in specialist communities. A prolific journalist and founding columnist for Salon.com, she will be resuming her regular column on that online periodical next week. Finally, Palia is a devoted teacher at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Her subject tonight is Religion in the Arts in America. We're very proud to have her here. Please join me in welcoming Camille Palia. Thank you, Professor Mason, for that wonderful introduction. And I am honored to be here giving this lecture for Colorado College. My subject tonight is Religion and the Arts in America. Fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> at this moment in America, religion and politics are at a flashpoint. Conservative Christians deplore the left-wing bias of the mainstream media and the saturation of popular culture by sex and violence, and are promoting strategies such as faith-based homeschooling to protect children from the chaotic moral relativism of a secular society. Liberals, in turn, condemn the meddling by Christian fundamentalists in politics, notably in regard to abortion and gay civil rights, or the Mideast, where biblical assumptions, it is claimed, have shaped U.S. policy. There is vicious mutual recrimination, with believers caricatured as paranoid, apocalyptic crusaders who view America's global mission as divinely inspired, while liberals are portrayed as narcissistic hedonists and godless elitists, relics of the unpatriotic, permissive 1960s. A primary arena for the conservative liberal wars has been the arts. Even while leading conservative voices defend the traditional Anglo-American canon, which has been under challenge and in flux for 40 years, American conservatives on the whole, outside of the New Criterion magazine, have shown little interest in the arts, except to promulgate a didactic theory of art as moral improvement that was discarded with the Victorian era at the birth of modernism. Liberals, on the other hand, have been too content with the high visibility of the arts in metropolitan centers, which comprise only a fraction of America. Furthermore, liberals have been complacent about the viability of secular humanism as a sustaining creed for the young. And liberals have, been, have done little to reverse the scandalous decline in urban public education or to protest the crazed system of our grotesquely overpriced cafeteria-style higher education, which for 30 years 
was infested by sterile and now fading post-structuralism and post-modernism. The state of the humanities in the U.S. can be measured by present achievement. Would anyone seriously argue that the fine arts or even popular culture is enjoying a period of high originality and creativity? American genius currently resides in technology and design. The younger generation, with its mastery of video games and its facility for ever-evolving gadgetry like video cell phones and iPods, has massively shifted to the web for information and entertainment. I would argue that the route to a renaissance of the American fine arts lies through religion. Let me make my premises clear. I am a professed atheist and a pro-choice libertarian Democrat. But based on my college experiences in the 1960s, when interest in Hinduism and Buddhism was strong, I have been calling for nearly two decades for massive educational reform that would put the study of comparative religion at the center of the university curriculum. Though I shared the exasperation of my generation with the moralism and prudery of organized religion, I view each world religion, including Judeo-Christianity and Islam, as a complex symbol system, a metaphysical lens through which we can see the vastness and sublimity of the universe. Knowledge of the Bible, one of the West's foundational texts, is waning among aspiring young artists and writers. When a society becomes all-consumed in the provincial minutiae of partisan politics, as has happened in the U.S. over the past 20 years, all perspective is lost. Great art can be made out of love for religion as well as rebellion against it. But a totally secularized society with contempt for religion sinks into materialism and self-absorption and gradually goes slack without leaving an artistic legacy. The position of the fine arts in America has rarely been secure. This is a practical commercial nation where the arts have often been seen as wasteful, frivolous, or unmanly. In Europe, the arts are heavily subsidized by the government because art literally embodies the history of the people and the nation whose roots are pre-modern and in some cases ancient. Even in the old Soviet Union, the the communist regime supported classical ballet. America is relatively young and it has never had an aristocracy, the elite class that typically commissions the fine arts and dictates taste. In Europe, the Catholic Church was also a major patron of the arts from the Middle Ages through the Renaissance and Counter-Reformation. Partly because of the omnipresent Greco-Roman heritage, furthermore, continental European attitudes toward nudity in art are far more relaxed. In Europe, voluptuous nudes in painting and sculpture and on public buildings, fountains, and bridges are a mundane fact of life. Conservatives often speak of the U.S. as a Judeo-Christian nation, a formulation that many people, including myself, find troublesome because of the absorption by our population over the past century and a half 
of so many immigrants of other faiths. The earliest colonization of America by Europeans was certainly Christian, and in New England specifically Protestant. The Spanish Catholic settlements in Florida and California, as well as the French missions in the Great Lakes in central New York, were eventually abandoned. Maryland, established in 1634 as a refuge for English Catholics, was the exception, and out of it would come the dominance of the bishops of Baltimore on American Catholic doctrine. The Puritans who arrived in New England in the early 17th century brought with them the Calvinist hostility or indifference to the visual arts, a motivating principle of the 16th century Protestant Reformation was its correction of Roman Catholicism's heavy use of images in medieval churches, in statues, paintings, and stained glass windows. The Protestant reformers reasserted the prohibition in the Ten Commandments against graven images, idolatrous objects that seduce the soul away from the immaterial divine. The Puritans a separatist sect that seceded from the two Catholic Church of England, followed the Reformation imperative of putting the Bible at the center of their faith. Direct study of the Bible, made possible by Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in the 15th century, was the means by which believers opened a personal dialogue with God. This focus on text and close reading helped inspire the American literary tradition. Both poetry and prose, in the form of diaries, were stimulated by the Puritan practice of introspection. A Puritan had to constantly scrutinize his or her conscience and look for God's hand in the common and uncommon events of life. Oratory, embodied in Sunday sermons, was very strong. Literary historian Perry Miller identified the Jeremiah, or Hellfire Sermon, as an innately American form, the most famous example of which was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was delivered in 1741 in Connecticut during the religious revival called the Great Awakening. This enthusiastic style of denunciation and call to repentance can still be heard on evangelical television programs, and it is echoed in the fulminations of politically conservative talk radio, which I have been listening to with alternating admiration and consternation for over 15 years. <laughs> the visual arts, on the other hand, were neglected and suppressed under the Puritans. The Puritans' suspicion of ornamentation is symbolized in the sober black dress of the Pilgrim Fathers depicted every year in the Thanksgiving decorations of American schools and shops. The Puritans' attitude toward art was conditioned by utilitarian principles of frugality and propriety. Art had no inherent purpose except as entertainment, a distraction from duty and ethical action. The Puritans did appreciate beauty in nature, which was read like a book for signs of God's providence. The social environment in England from which the Puritans had emigrated to America, either directly or indirectly via the Netherlands, was overtly iconoclastic. Destruction of church art was massive during the Reformation in Switzerland and Germany 
as well as England, where destruction of churches, priories, and abbeys followed Henry VIII's severance of the English church from control by the Roman Catholic hierarchy in the 1530s. Crowds smashed medieval stained glass windows and wooden altar screens and decapitated the saint statues carved on church facades. Walls were whitewashed to cover sacred murals. Politically incited damage to churches was even more severe during the English Civil War, when Puritan soldiers dispatched by Parliament attacked even the cathedral at Canterbury, which the leader of the ravagers described as, quote, a stable for idols. Puritan iconoclasm was a pointed contrast to the image mania of the contemporary Counter-Reformation, the Vatican's campaign to defeat Protestantism, would fill Southern Europe with grandiose Baroque art. The first serious body of painting in America was 18th century portraiture, documentary works commissioned to mark social status. By the time professional theater started here, Puritanism had faded, so there were no replays of the battles the English Puritans had waged against the theater world in Shakespeare's time. But if American drama and the visual arts languished in the wake of Puritanism, music was tremendously energized. The first book published in the American colonies was the Bay Psalter book, which was released in Massachusetts in 1640 and went through 27 editions. As a collection of psalms for singing in church, it belonged to a century-long line of British and Scottish psalters. Before the Reformation, hymns for the Catholic Mass were in Latin and were sung only by the clergy, not the laity. But Martin Luther, a priest and poet who admired German folk song, felt that hymns should be in the vernacular and should be sung by the congregation of worshipers. This emphasis on congregational singing is one of Protestantism's defining features, imitated in recent decades with varying success by American Catholic parishes. <laughs> Through its defiance of medieval religious authority, Protestantism helped produce modern individualism. Yet Protestant church services also promoted community and social cohesion. The intertwining of capitalism and Protestantism since the Renaissance has been extensively studied. But perhaps the congregational esprit of church-going may also have been a factor in the Protestant success in shaping modern business practices and corporate culture. The Protestant reformers were bitterly split, however, over the issue of music in church. Luther encouraged the composition of new hymns and was the author of a famous one, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In contrast, John Calvin, the father of American Puritanism, maintained that only the word of God should be heard in church. Therefore, songs had to strictly follow the biblical psalms. Like his fellow reformer Ulrich Zwingli, Calvin opposed the use of organs or any instruments in church. Organs were systematically destroyed by Protestant radicals. Furthermore, Calvin condemned the complex polyphonic music endorsed by the more artistic Luther. Calvin rejected harmony or part singing, 
so that the Holy Scripture could be heard with perfect clarity. Therefore, the American style of Protestant church song based on Calvin's principles was simple, slow, serious, and in unaccompanied unison. That intense, focused group sound has descended through the centuries and can be heard in the majestic hymns that have been adopted as anthems by American civil rights groups, such as Amazing Grace and We Shall Overcome. The Quakers, who were pivotal to the abolitionist movement against slavery, were even more restrictive about such matters. The Quakers frowned on music altogether, even at home, because they believed it encouraged thoughtlessness and frivolity. But the German and Dutch who emigrated to America from the late 17th to the mid-18th centuries held the more expansive Lutheran view of church music. The German influence was especially strong in Philadelphia, to which German pietists imported a church organ in 1694. By the start of the 19th century, hymn writing exploded in America. Over the next hundred years, hymns of tremendous quality poured out from both men and women writers. In many cases, they were simply lyrics, pure poetry that was then attached to old melodies. A famous example from the Civil War is Julia Ward Howe's Battle Hymn of the Republic, which Howe wrote overnight in a fever of inspiration after visiting a Union Army camp near Washington, where she heard the soldiers singing John Brown's Body, a tribute to the executed abolitionist rebel. Several other songs would become political hymns to the nation, such as My Country Tis of Thee, written in 1832 by a Baptist minister, Samuel Francis Smith, and America the Beautiful, a lyric written by Catherine Lee Bates, a native of Massachusetts whose father was a Congregationalist pastor. Bates saw the Rockies for the first time when she came to teach here at Colorado College in 1893. She wrote America the Beautiful after a wagon trip to the top of Pikes Peak. When it was published in 1899, it became instantly famous and has often been described as America's true national anthem. The huge 19th century corpus of Protestant songs became part of common American culture for people of all faiths. Thus, the tragic power of that final scene on the sinking Titanic in 1912 when the ship's band struck up the hymn Nearer my God to thee. Hymnody should be viewed as a genre of the fine arts and be added to the basic college curriculum. One of the most brilliant products of American creative imagination, Hymnody has had a massive global impact through popular music. Wherever rock and roll is played, a shadow of its gospel roots remains. Rock, which emerged in the 1950s from urban black rhythm and blues of the late 1940s, had several sources, including percussive African polyrhythms and British and Scots-Irish folk ballads. But a principal influence was the ecstatic, prophesying, body-shaking style of congregational singing in the camp meetings of religious revivalists from the late 18th century on. All gospel music, including Negro spirituals, 
descends from those extravaganzas which drew thousands of people to open-air worship services in woods and groves. The most influential camp meeting occurred at Cane Ridge in Bourbon County, Kentucky, in 1804. For three days and well past midnight, a crowd estimated to be between 20,000 and 30,000 sang and shouted with a great noise that was heard from miles around. Worshippers, transported by extreme emotion, writhed and fell to the ground or went catatonic. This Kentucky revival, called the Second Great Awakening, spread through the inland regions of the South and eventually reached western Pennsylvania. But the movement never flourished in the North because of its harsher weather. Collections of gospel music for use in revivals were published to huge success throughout the 19th century, from gospel melodies released in 1821 and spiritual songs for social, social worship, 1832, to Ira D. Sankey's multiple volumes of gospel hymns and sacred songs, 1875-91. A defining characteristic of such songs is their subjectivity, that is, their use of the first-person pronoun to attest to an intimate relationship with Jesus, as in, I love to tell the story, or he leadeth me. Out of this gospel tradition also came Negro spirituals, which would powerfully counter the degraded stereotypes of African Americans circulated by minstrel shows. Spirituals began on the antebellum plantations, where Bible stories were ingeniously adapted to carry coded political messages, as in Go Down Moses, a dream of liberation, where Pharaoh represents the white slave owner in collusion with American law. A major addition to the gospel repertory was Slave Songs of the United States, published in 1867. In the 1870s, an African-American choir the Jubilee Singers of Fisk University in Tennessee traveled the country performing Negro spirituals in a concert setting to help endow black educational institutions. The songs made a sensation, not only for their melodious beauty and religious fervor, but for the residual African elements, such as bluesy flat notes and offbeats, the syncopation that would later surface in jazz. The brilliant folk hymns of 19th century camp meetings were inherited by modern revivals, such as the Billy Graham Crusade. In popular music, the spasmodic undulations and ecstatic cries of camp meeting worshipers were borrowed by performers like Little Richard, Elvis Presley, and the late great James Brown, whose career began in gospel and who became the godfather of soul as well as of funk, reggae, and rap. Gospel music, passionate and histrionic, with its electrifying dynamics, is America's grand opera. The omnipresence of gospel here partly explains the weakness of rock music in other nations, except where there has been direct influence by American rhythm and blues, as in Great Britain and Australia. The continuing impact of gospel music on young African Americans in church may also account for the current greater vitality of hip-hop as opposed to hard rock, which has been in creative crisis for over a decade. 
There was a second great confluence of religion with the arts in 19th century America. The Bible, in its poetic and indeed Shakespearean King James translation, rather than, to, rather than today's flat pedestrian versions, had a huge formative influence on the language, imagery, symbolism, and allegory of such major writers as James Fenimore Cooper, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, and Herman Melville. The American literary renaissance was produced by the intersection of the nation's residual Calvinism with British Romanticism, which was hostile to organized religion, but which had transferred its concept of spirituality to nature. Pantheism helped inspire transcendentalism, which was suffused with aspects of Hinduism by Emerson, a refugee from strict Unitarianism. This view of nature, which saw God as imminent in creation, was spectacularly embodied in the 19th century Hudson River School of landscape painting. In such works as Thomas Cole's River in the Catskills or Frederick Church's Niagara, these artists showed America's mountains and monumental cataracts glowing with the numinous. Catholic immigration in the 19th century brought a radically different aesthetic to church architecture and decor. The typical American church had been in, in the Protestant plain style, white and rectangular with a steeple that formed the picturesque apex of countless villages, a style descending from the British architects Sir Christopher Wren and James Gibbs. Originally, American churches were often simply a meeting house, a word still retained in Quaker practice. Also used for local government, the meeting house was a boxy space with exposed timbers and benches, but no ornamentation, a template that was borrowed by town halls across the nation. Catholic taste was far more lavish. The influx of Irish immigrants in the 1840s, which caused anti-Catholic violence, was soon registered in New York's St. Patrick's Cathedral, designed by James Renwick and constructed from 1850 to 1877. With its soaring spires, delicate stonework, and stained glass windows, it exemplified the current Gothic revival, a grand style that was also adopted in America by Episcopalian churches. Polish and Italian Catholics arrived en masse in the closing decades of the 19th century. Eastern European parish churches followed the ornate Byzantine model. Italian-American churches installed a profusion of polychrome statuary, as was customary in the old country, a flamboyant style that continued until after World War II, when the liturgical movement from Germany introduced a stripped-down modernist design with open spaces and little imagery except for abstract crucifixes. This development resulted in a genteel Protestantizing of American Catholicism, which erased its vestiges of working-class ethnicity. When aging Catholic churches were renovated in the 1950s and 60s, the saint statues were displaced or banished altogether. I mourn this loss because it has impoverished the cultural environment for young people. My interest in the arts was first kindled in childhood 
by the gorgeous stained glass windows and theatrical statuary of my baptismal church, St. Anthony of Padua in Endicott, New York. Perhaps America's rising Hispanic population will restore the great imagistic style of Latin Catholicism. Though there was a long tradition of censorship in Roman Catholicism, typified by its voluminous index of prohibited books, American Catholics made few attempts to influence public policy during the 19th century. That role was taken up with gusto by the Protestant-led temperance movement, which called for a ban on the public sale of alcohol, a long campaign that finally succeeded with the adoption in 1920 of the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which began prohibition. Major groups in the temperance movement, which included leading feminists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League. The Anti-Saloon League was heavily financed by Methodists and Baptists. Episcopalians, in contrast, kept their distance from the temperance crusade. Catholic surveillance of American public life would come with the rise of Hollywood. At the start of the studio era, movies were still viewed as vulgar. In the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, there was a new rule-breaking energy in sexual adventurism in urban areas. Responding to audience demand, movies began pushing the limits with bare flesh and sexual innuendo. Small communities across the U.S. felt they were being invaded by an alien cultural force. Resistance came from a collaboration between the Catholic Church and local Protestant women's groups speaking from the perspective of concerned mothers. There were tinges of anti-Semitism in this protest because so many of Hollywood's early producers and financiers were Jewish. A series of guidelines were instituted in movie making throughout the 1920s, but compliance was uneven. Finally, with the creation in 1933 of the Catholic National League of Decency, which threatened a nationwide boycott, Hollywood responded with a strict production code to be administered through the Hayes office by an Irish Catholic, Joseph I. Breen. This code, which wasn't officially abandoned until the 1960s, required scripts to follow a moral formula. Crime had to be punished and marriage respected, with homosexuality and miscegenation forbidden. Though long disbanded, the Legion of Decency lingers on today in our lettered rating system for movies, G, PG, PG PG-13, R, NC-17. The Legion attached descending grades of A, B, or C to each film released in the U.S. When I was a child, the group was still a formidable force. After Mass one Sunday, I was transfixed by the official list posted in the church foyer that showed the Legion of Decency had slapped a C on the 1956 film Baby Doll, meaning it was condemned and that no Catholic could see it without pain of sin. The title Baby Doll seemed inscribed in smoking red-hot letters from hell. The film, based on... a Tennessee Williams tale about Southern decadence 
was being provocatively advertised by kiddie porn images of blonde Carol Baker lounging in a nighty and sucking her thumb. It was 40 years before I finally had a chance to see Baby Doll <laughs> on cable TV in the 1990s. It still retains its mythic, subversive significance for me. Indeed, Baby Doll is emblematic of the quarrel between religion and the arts in America. As avant-garde modernism triumphed in the first half of the 20th century, it was only the movies that addressed or expressed the religious convictions of the mass audience. With few exceptions, most modern artists and intellectuals were agnostics or atheists, above all in Europe, where anti-clericalism has raged since the Enlightenment. In its search for ticket sales, Hollywood returned again and again to the spectacular Bible epic, one of my favorite genres. Cecil B. DeMille, for example, made the Ten Commandments twice, in 1923 as a silent film, and then as a widescreen technicolor uh, uh, extravaganza released in uh, 1956. The latter is regularly broadcast on religious holidays and remains a masterpiece of heroic narrative and archaeological recreation of Egyptian life. The best-selling American religious novel of the 19th century was General Lew Wallace's Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, published in 1880 and widely imitated. Ben-Hur was also made into two films, the first, a 1925 silent, and the second, yet another, widescreen masterpiece released in 1959. The dynamic star of both the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur was Charlton Heston, who afterward became a conservative activist and president of the National Rifle Association. (laughs) Because of the divergence between religion and the prestige fine arts in the 20th century, overtly religious American art became weaker and weaker. One of the most disseminated images of the 20th century was William Solomon's Head of Christ, a 1940 oil painting inspired by Victorian precedents that showed a long-haired Jesus bathed in light and gazing raptly toward heaven. In his intriguing 1996 book, Icons of American Protestantism, David Morgan notes that the head of Christ was reproduced 500 million times over the next four decades. The image was beloved among evangelicals, but not among mainline Protestants. Many critics, even believers, rejected the painting as sentimental kitsch and denounced its portrayal of Christ as, quote, effeminate, as well as overly Nordic Caucasian. Solomon was, in fact, the son of Scandinavian immigrants. Head of Christ shows Jesus as the gentle, benevolent good shepherd, the forgiving friend with whom born-again Christians, such as President Jimmy Carter, claim to walk and talk. If there were few open conflicts in America between religion and the fine arts through most of the 20th century, it was simply because the two realms rarely overlapped. But that uneasy truce ended with the culture wars of the 1980s and 90s. Under the conservative presidencies of Ronald Reagan, whose goal was to reduce big government, there was close scrutiny of cultural agencies. Considerable impetus came from William Bennett, the new director of the National Endowment for the Humanities, whose budget he cut. When Bennett was appointed Secretary of Education, he was succeeded as director of the NEH by Lynn Cheney, wife of the future Vice President Dick Cheney.
she targeted deconstruction on campus and liberal bias in government-funded public broadcasting programs. A focus of controversy soon became the National Endowment for the Arts, whose authorization was approved in 1964 by President Lyndon Johnson, but which had to struggle for congressional funding from the start, with vehement opposition even to its creation, coming from Strom Thurmond, the conservative senator from South Carolina. A variety of groups mobilized outside government in the 1980s to counter what was perceived as a moral degeneration in the media environment. These included Dr. James Dobson's Focus on the Family, Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition, and the Reverend Lewis Sheldon's Coalition for Traditional Values. In 1985, the Parents Music Resource Center, led by Tipper Gore, lobbied in Senate hearings for content labeling of popular music because of concerns about sex and violence. In 1985, evangelical Protestant organizations led by Jerry Falwell and Donald Wildman allied with anti-pornography feminists, whom I strongly opposed, to pressure 7-Eleven and other national chains of convenience stores to ban the sale of Playboy in penthouse magazines. That effort succeeded, but may have been a pyrrhic victory insofar as it immediately stimulated the market for pornographic videos introduced into homes by the then-new technology of the VCR. In 1988, Wildman's lobbying led to the U.S. House of Representatives passing a resolution that called for Universal Studios to cancel the release of Martin Scorsese's controversial film, The Last Temptation of Christ. Wildman's activities expanded to the fine arts when, in 1989, his group publicized an apparent example of blasphemy in an exhibition that had been partly funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. The show had opened at the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Art in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in conservative Senator Jesse Helms' home state, and closed, after a short tour, in Richmond, Virginia. The point of contention was New York artist Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, a five-foot-high blow-up of a misty photograph of a plastic crucifix immersed in a plexiglass vat of the artist's urine. Without that deliberately and perhaps gratuitously provocative slangy title, of course, no one would have known how the photo's golden glow had been produced. The outcry over Piss Christ began with local letters to the editor and spread to Congress, where New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato called Serrano's photo, quote, filth and, quote, garbage, and punctuated his remarks by tearing up the ex- ex- exhibition catalog and fleeing the pieces to the Senate floor. Another bitter controversy broke out in 1989 over an exhibit of Robert Maplethorpe's openly gay and sadomasochistic photographs. This show was assembled by the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia and was partly funded in the amount of $30,000 by the National Endowment for the Arts. There were no problems in Philadelphia, but negative publicity exploded just before the Maplethorpe show was to open in Washington's venerable Corcoran Gallery of Art, located only a block from the White House. The director of the museum, of the gallery, preemptively canceled the exhibit, an arbitrary move that caused outrage in the art world. 
she resigned under fire by the end of the year. The Maplethorpe show was quickly taken by a local progressive venue, the Washington Project for the Arts, where it drew huge crowds. When it moved to the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center, however, there were serious repercussions. Police entered the gallery, and the director was charged with obscenity. He was put on trial, but was later acquitted by a jury. Political activism on the left was unusually intense during the 1980s because of the AIDS epidemic, which which the Reagan administration was accused of having initially ignored. Maplethorpe, who had died of of AIDS at age 42 in 1989, was viewed as an apostle of sexual liberation. As an admirer of Maplethorpe, I argued at the time that this was a sentimental misreading of his work, whose dark, punitive hierarchies were partly a residue of his childhood Catholicism. Another seething ex-Catholic, Madonna, was also challenging taboos at that time. In 1989, her video for Like a Prayer, which showed her making love to the animated statue of a black saint and dancing in her slip in front of a burning cross, caused Pepsi-Cola to cancel her $5 million endorsement contract. Though work offensive to organized religion constituted only a fraction of the projects annually supported by the National Endowment for the Arts, conservative demands for the total abolition of that agency escalated. The NEA's administrators and peer review panels were denounced for left-wing bias and anti-Americanism. As a career teacher at arts colleges, I was very concerned about the stereotyping of artists as parasitic nihilists that was beginning to take hold in the popular mind in America. While most people in the arts community viewed the Serrano and Maplethorpe controversies as assaults on free speech, I saw them as primarily an argument about public funding. I feel that no genuinely avant-garde artist should be taking money from the government, a view also expressed at the time by the legendary beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, another Italian-American. <laughs> Maplethorpe certainly was no struggling artist. He was rich and famous by the time of his death. And I would question whether Maplethorpe's cool, elegant, torture and mutilation scenarios were an ideal advertisement for gay male life. After acrimonious congressional debate, the National Endowment for the Arts managed to survive, but it was now regulated by an obscenity clause. Grants to individual artists also decreased. Though controversy has subsided, the NEA disturbingly remains at the top of every list of government agencies that many citizens across the nation want abolished. What I found agonizing about the Serrano-Maplethorpe episodes was that they ruined any prospect for vastly increased federal support for the arts in this country, and furthermore, that they would inevitably undermine arts funding at the state and local levels where budgets are limited. Dance companies are particularly vulnerable because they require high-quality rehearsal space and depend on a sustained continuity of teacher and student. Almost a decade passed in America without a major conflict between government and the arts. In 1999, however, the Brooklyn Museum of Art mounted an exhibit called Sensation, Emerging British Artists from the Saatchi Collection. 
When this show had appeared at the Royal Academy of Arts in London, controversy had mainly focused on a large image of an infamous child murderess, which was vandalized with ink and eggs. The work that caused trouble in the U.S., however, was the British-Nigerian artist Chris O'Feely's mixed-media painting, The Holy Virgin Mary. It depicted a black-skinned Madonna with a protruding breast sculpted of lacquered elephant dung from the London Zoo. Two other lumps of dung supported the painting's base. In England, no one objected to the Ophelia work. But in New York City, with its huge constituency of ethnic Catholics, there was an immediate reaction fomented by the New York-based Catholic League for Religious and Civil Liberties. Yet another Italian-American Catholic politician, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, expressed outrage, and before the show had even opened. At a fiery press conference, Giuliani, who had not yet seen the Ophelia painting, called it, quote, sick and, quote, disgusting. The mayor unilaterally impounded the Brooklyn Museum's city funding and threatened to evict it from its century-old lease. This extreme political intrusion diverted the discussion from one of art to that of censorship. While the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Philippe Montebello, criticized the handling of the show by Arnold Lehman, the director of the Brooklyn Museum, most people in the arts community instantly rallied to the museum's side. But unease remained, especially after Lehman openly lied to the media about the pivotal financial role played in the show by Charles Saatchi, a British advertising executive notorious for his speculation in the art market. A direct intervention was made at the show by a 72-year-old devout Catholic who evaded security guards to squeeze washable white paint all over Ophelia's painting, an act that some viewed as racist, but that oddly paralleled the whitewashing of Catholic images by early Protestant iconoclasts. The man, who told police he had attacked the painting because it was, quote, blasphemous, was charged with violating the city's ordinance against graffiti. <laughs> when the controversy first erupted, I publicly questioned the double standard operative in the art world in regard to artists' manipulation of religious iconography. Desecration of Catholic symbols was tolerated in American museums in ways that would never be permitted if the themes were Jewish or Muslim. Second, I denounced the total failure of curatorial support of sensation at the Brooklyn Museum, which simply passively mounted the London show. Much of the misunderstanding of the Ophelia painting might have been avoided if the museum had framed it with historical context about, first, African Christian and particularly Ethiopian art, Second, tribal African fertility cults. Third, the Catholic doctrine of the virgin birth. And fourth, the long Southern European tradition of the Black Madonna. Commentary by the tabloid press and furious conservatives who had never seen the painting referred to dung being, quote, thrown or, quote, flung at the Madonna, which was completely false. But with all candor, no defense of this painting could have totally exonerated it from scandal, since Ophelia had pasted around Mary a cloud of small cutouts of female genitalia culled from pornography magazines. <laughs> from a distance, they looked like butterflies or hovering angels. 
emissaries of nature rather than the Christian God. That there was indeed unprofessional indifference to curatorship in this case would be confirmed just last year by Arnold Lehman's shocking demotion of his principal curators in a reorganization of the Brooklyn Museum that demonstrated the unscholarly diversion of the institution from public education toward commercial buzz. The automatic defense of the Brooklyn Museum during the sensation imbroglio sometimes betrayed a dismaying snobbery by liberal middle-class professionals who were openly disdainful of the religious values of the working class whom liberals always claim to protect. Supporters of the arts who gleefully cheer when a religious symbol is maltreated act as if that response authenticates their avant-garde credentials. But here's the bad news. The avant-garde is dead It was killed over 40 years ago by pop art and by one of my heroes, Andy Warhol, a decadent Catholic. The era of vigorous oppositional art, inaugurated 200 years ago by Romanticism, is long gone. The controversies over Andre Serrano, Robert Maplethorpe, and Chris Ophelia were just fading sparks of an old cause. It is presumptuous and even delusional to imagine that goading a squawk out of the Catholic League permits anyone to borrow the glory of the great avant-garde rebels of the past whose transgressions were personally costly. It's time to move on. For the fine arts to revive, they must recover their spiritual center. Profaning the iconography of other people's faiths is boring and adolescent. Thank you. The New Age movement, to which I belong, was a distillation of the 1960s multicultural attraction to world religions, but it has failed thus far to produce important work in the visual arts. The search for spiritual meaning has been registering in popular culture instead through science fiction, as in George Lucas's six-film Star Wars saga with its evocative master myth of the Force. But technology for its own sake is never enough. It will always require supplementation through cultivation in the arts. To fully appreciate world art, one must learn how to respond to religious expression in all its forms. Art began as religion in prehistory. It does not require belief to be moved by a sacred shrine, icon, or scripture. Hence, art lovers... Even when, as citizens, they stoutly defend democratic institutions against religious intrusion, should always speak with respect of religion. Conservatives, on the other hand, need to expand their parched and narrow view of culture. Every vibrant civilization welcomes and nurtures the arts. Progressives must start recognizing the spiritual poverty of contemporary secular humanism and re-examine the way that liberalism too often now automatically defines human aspiration and human happiness in reductively economic terms. If conservatives are serious about educational standards, they must support the teaching of art history in primary school, which means... 
which means conservatives have to get over their phobia about the nude. which has been a symbol of Western art and Western individualism and freedom since the Greeks invented democracy. Without compromise, we are heading for a soulless future. But when set against the vast historical panorama, religion and art, whether in marriage or divorce, can reinvigorate American culture. Thank you very much for your attention. (laughs) 